in a story, magic exists to evoke a sense of wonder and or solve a problem. You know, sometimes both. And depending on the goal of the story, uh, that will determine whether or not you're going to have something that's more complex. Does it really have, is it really clearly defined? Does it really have a set of rules? But that when someone reads it or watches it or whatever, has a sense of wonder at this, at this magic. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Let's welcome Matthew C. Brown back to the podcast to talk about magic systems. We discuss the fundamentals of magic in fantasy, whether or not science fiction and technology are magical, and how we can challenge the traditional light versus dark in binary magic systems. Stick around until the end, where we debate the classic question, if magic users existed in our modern society, should they be forced to reveal themselves? Welcome back to the podcast, Matthew C. Brown. It has been almost, I think at the time that this is going to air, almost exactly a year from the first episode's airing, which you were, first interview episode, which you were on. Can you believe that? I know. And I still, you know, I remember when you reached out to me um, and it was a very exciting opportunity because, you know, I'd always, I'd always thought about doing some kind of podcast, but it's just, I mean, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, as I'm sure, as I'm sure you're aware of, as I'm sure you're aware of, and it was the kind of thing where I'm like, I don't really want to do this if I'm not going to be able to make it as good as I can be. And then at that time I was like, I know that I, I don't have the time to dedicate to making it that good, but, uh, so being invited to record for you was fantastic. And it's been great coming onto the show, uh, just getting to just getting to shoot the shoot the ish yeah I know right it it is kind of cool and I think with podcasting because I mean it's been around for a couple like several years now podcasting in general but I feel like it's really taken on a new uh interest I guess with the general public and even in like my other job my other communications job it's become almost um normal now like why don't you have a podcast and it's just kind of cool to see that pick up you know 
Mm-hmm, absolutely. And there's just so few, uh, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I was on the lookout for writing podcasts specifically. And, you know, there were some that were great. Um, and there were others that I, I didn't really, you know, I just didn't like it. Just, I didn't like the format or I didn't feel like I was getting anything out of it. But uh, this has been great because I love just checking in for new episodes. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that was one of my goals was to create a podcast where we just sit down and brainstorm. And that was what I was also missing too, right? When uh, a year ago, I, I had that writer's block, like I've mentioned, and the best feeling I get is when you sit down with your friends and just come up with like silly, fun ideas. And then you want to go home and you want to write. And that's exactly the feeling I wanted to get out of a podcast. Absolutely. Which takes a lot of like general, like I have to thank everyone, including you who, who's appeared on this podcast. It takes a lot of generosity. Um, it's like you're sharing something with the world. And in some cases, you're, people are giving away ideas. And I just think that is just an awesome thing about the writing community. Yeah, it's great just to, it's great when people can get together and just kind of share in a very open way, you know, without, without any real judgment. Um, and you do, and you just, you know, iron out certain things or you figure out things that you've from a different perspective that you've never thought about before. And especially if you feel very set in your ways, you know, there's a lot of things that I personally feel like, ah, like I don't need any advice about this because I kind of know, I know what I want. I know what I'm doing. Uh, but then every now and again, something will pop up. I'm like, oh, you know what? That, that does change things a bit, or that might be nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's been about a year. And when you and I were recording that time, we were talking about where we were in the writing industry. So between then and now, where are you? How, how's it going? So right now I'm in a place, it's kind of an exciting place, but also a very unknown place. Uh, back, so I had signed with my agent uh, in 2021. And then that summer I went on submission for uh, Song of the Raptors, my sci-fi Western with Velociraptors that I think I've touted like every time I've recorded on the show. Um <laughs> And since then, you know, it, it, it has, it has had a hard time on sub. It has not found a home, uh, which is obviously disappointing, but I have managed to stay busy at the same time. I mean, I've not, and I've not completely given up on it. You know, I don't know when that's going to get out into the world, uh, but it will at some point. Uh, and instead I kind of turned to a, to a second, a second manuscript that I spent most of 2022 working on and editing and uh right now that is in the hands of my agent who is going over edits and revisions uh which i'm sure i'll be getting that's what i'll probably be spending uh most of this year doing as well once i get those back um you know i've been trying to stay busy in the meantime with just writing new stuff uh, before i get those revisions Uh, but i'm hoping that i'm hoping that we'll be able to you know, this new story, it's a new fantasy story that I'm hoping we'll be spending most of my time working on uh, for this year. So it's, it, it, so like I said, very uh, unknown, but very exciting as well. Mm-hmm. I completely relate. Uh, it, it, it is such an interesting process. And my manuscript, which the, you know, working title is called what is it called? <laughs> what did I call that thing? <laughs> it's been so long. Um, it has been called, oh, 
But first, take off your shoes, a tale of surviving aliens and hypercritical mothers. That story has been on submission as well. And it also has kind of, I think I mentioned this before, it's been perplexing. It's been, uh, you know, I've had editors that really love it, but then there's some key things in it that perplexes them and they're not quite sure what to do because it's so different. So that's been kind of, you know, waiting for that one to land. And in the meantime, my agent has about 50,000 words of a uh, optional second manuscript that I just can't figure out how to finish or complete. I got burnt out. So now um, inspiration hit me last month. And now I'm working on book one of a duology. It's kind of crazy to go from like zero. I have nothing. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life to, whoa, two books, duology. Um, I, what, I outlined the full first book. I'm currently working on getting the world building finished. And I'm thankful that I got the, the writing surge again. Uh, so same, same area where I'm really excited, but I'm also kind of like waiting it's a re it's an interesting bittersweet feeling. It is, uh, and it's actually kind of funny because the book I'm working on now, I'm debating making that a duology as well. So it's kind of that's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, um, awesome. That's uh, great. Yeah, I'm not sure yet. Uh, I don't do as much. I don't do quite as much outlining. Uh, so I'm not sure if it will go that way, but uh, but uh, it it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, I will say it's been very cool to see you. I've seen you post a lot of updates about your process, like on Instagram or uh, Twitter, just you know, where you're at uh, in the draft and kind of how you've been uh, laying down the groundwork. And I'm always just very fascinated by how different writers approach mm -hmm. their manuscripts, especially in the early stages because that's really when uh that i feel like that really is where you can tell the difference between a lot of different writers because there's some that will kind of just jump in feet first there's some that will spend a very long time uh laying down the groundwork during the world building and obviously that depends on the kind of story that you're writing and how much complexity there is in the world but uh I always find that very fascinating to see other people's process. Yeah, it really is. Um, and one of the author takeovers that's going to be coming out soon, at the time of this recording, it, it will release soon. But by the time people hear us, it'll have already been out. Uh, with Andrew Dart, he talks about pantsing, how pantsing is the preferred method for him. And he, he walks people through the process. And it's so fascinating because you're right, everyone is so different. For me, I, you, I've been, I'm a very heavy plotter when I'm in my zone, when I feel good about something. And I think it's because I have a lot of anxiety. I'm always worried that my hyperfixation phase is going to stop before I'm done. And so I'm like, I have to get, I have to get it. I have to get it. I don't want to lose it. I don't want to lose it. So what I do is I turn my chapter summaries into a hypothetical first draft. So all the character stuff is resolved. It's not even like in some parts it is drafted, like my first two chapters are halfway drafted and, you know, I, I get an idea of tone, but by the time I'm able to say the end on the chapter summary, and they're about one to two pages each for each chapter, I can pretend that is the first draft. And then my brain kind of calms down. And then I'm like, okay, from here on out, all I'm doing is fleshing this out. The hard work's already done. And then it's just easier for me from there. It definitely is helpful to have at least a little bit of a roadmap. You know, I also uh, don't tend to do as much uh, outlining, but I do sometimes like to have, I, I like to have a little carrot on a stick. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I might, usually what happens is, you know, I might have, you know, if I'm at point A and then there's point B and I know exactly what's going to happen at point B, I just don't know what's going to happen 
in between. And then like, you know, sometimes I'll write, you know, I'll write what's going to happen at point B. So I'm like, Oh, you're very excited about that, but you got to do all this to get there. And that kind of keep, that kind of keeps me motivated. Cause I'm like, if I write all this down and it doesn't matter how good it is the first time, I just got to write it down, get to point B, and then I'll get to the thing that I really want to write. Mm. Uh, and that kind of keeps me motivated to keep yes. going. Speaking of which, what advice do you have for writers about honest expectations of a first draft? I mean, I think the worst thing that you can do, and this is one of the best genuine pieces of writing advice, uh, and it's something that I've had to remind myself of time and time again, is that you cannot compare what you are writing, the first draft, which you are currently writing, to anything that is finished, whether mm. you cannot compare it to a book that you previously finished, you cannot compare it to a book by your favorite author that is out on the shelf with a pretty, pretty cover that has been looked at by however many people. You can't mm -hmm. compare it to any of that. And doing there's a difference between being inspired by a work and comparing yourself to it every single step of the way. And that's just going to slow you down. If you're sitting there and you're on chapter, I don't know, seven, and you're sitting, why? Oh, this isn't matching up at all to, I don't know what uh, George R. R. Martin was doing at this point. It's, and it's like, okay, but George R. R. Martin has been doing this for however long. He, I mean, Game of Thrones wasn't even his first book. Uh, mm -hmm. He'd been, and however many people helped him you know, edit that book and revise it and put it on the shelf. It, it, there's, it's a, it's a TV series. You can't, you can't compare your draft to that. Just write the first, the best first draft that you can do. Like, doesn't matter how bad you actually think it is. Just get it all out there and it can all be salvaged later. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. I remember when I started doing draft two with Leslie, our editor, I was still catching places from draft one where I had the wrong tense. I had someone's name incorrect, like a former version of their name. And it's just, you know, I, I got embarrassed at first, but I'm like, no, this is literally, this is just how it works. You clean, you clean, you clean. And eventually it's polished, but that first draft could be quite messy. Leslie's a miracle worker. Yes, she is. <laughs> Shout out to Leslie. Leslie Henson, who's a fantastic editor. She's currently a ghostwriter and she's also in the uh, immortality episode. <laughs> Okay, so we are here to talk about magic systems. And I wanted to start, well, first, I guess we should do it. We kind of really went into your background, but we didn't really formally introduce you. So my name is Matthew C. Brown. I'm a science fiction fantasy author. I've been on this show a couple times. Uh, you can check the backlog of episodes, but uh, I have a science fiction Western short story out on my website at mattbrownwrites.com called Pepper Damn Luck, which is a science fiction western with velociraptors instead of horses and if you read that story that's basically what you can expect from most of what i write awesome and i really enjoyed your short story i think i said this before but i, I just it's great so people go check him check him out check it out on his website okay rapid fire warm-up i didn't send you these are you ready Ooh, ooh yes 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 okay ready. okay all right here we go which do you prefer texting or a phone call texting okay same. What's your favorite childhood television show? Uh, Rugrats. Oh, cool. Okay. Do you prefer cake or pie? Pie. Same. I like to get chocolate pie for my birthday instead of mm. cake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you could pick a magic system to live in, what would it be? And what would your magic ability be? Uh, so the first thing that 
kind of comes to mind strangely is Lord of the Rings, which uh, yeah, I'll get into a little more of this a little later. But I love the magic in Lord of the Rings because uh, there's not a whole lot of structure to it. It's just all stuff that comes up and is just every time something happens, it's just so wondrous. Um, and specifically, I'd like a, I'd like some Lembas bread. Ooh. which might not sound like the most magical thing, but it's a food that can keep you full for days. I think that's pretty magical. That is pretty magical. All right, fair enough. And have you ever seen something in real life that you could only explain by saying magic? Uh, that's a, that is a good question. I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe when I was a kid watching my dad uh, take his thumb off, uh, I, th- I thought that was absolute witchcraft. <laughs> you know, he's sitting there like uh, taking taking his thumb and moving it, and I just I could not wrap my little head around it. And I mean, and and I would ask him to do it over and over and over, just trying to figure out how he did it. I tried to I tried to do it, and I just couldn't figure it out. Uh, so I so guess true. at that time, obviously, I kind of know how it works now, but I can't tell you that secret, uh, of course. Yeah, of course. Would, uh, Never reveal tricks and all that stuff. That is a top secret parent magic trick right there. You got to like, you got to be like a parent, right? To know. <laughs> yeah. I think you have to, I think, I think like s- someone like a magician comes up on the street and tells you how to do it. As soon as you, uh, as soon as you bring your kid home, it's like, by the way, if That's you right. wanted to know how to do the thumb trick. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> uh, my dad used to always also do one where he would make his, like he'd pull his arm out of its socket or his head out of the neck hole, the way he would do that. <laughs> And I'm going to, I'll give away a little bit of magic. All right. So what, what you do is you kind of raise your shoulder and pull your sleeve down. And then you take, you take, you take your wrist and you start to slowly pull your arm. And as a result, your shoulder lowers and it looks like your arm is coming out of the sleeve, not completely out, but enough. And then he would, then you do what you do with your neck is you pull your collar up. So it's closer to the chin and you kind of shrug. And then you just kind of lift your head out and relax your shoulders. And, and it creates the illusion of removing your head. And my brother would lose his shit. Like he would <laughs> scream. He thought my dad was killing himself. Like, so try it on your kids next time. <laughs> yes, it's, unless I can figure out how to actually dislocate my arm. Maybe that would be fun. <laughs> All right. So for those that have already read the episode title and heard some of these rapid fire questions, the topic of the day is magic systems. So Matt, tell me, why are you interested in this topic? Magic and storytelling are just so closely intertwined. They go way back into some of our oldest stories. You can find it in the various mythologies. You can find it in the Arthurian legends. You can find it in the classic fairy tales. And it just takes on so many different forms. And they're not always, you know, some of them are more complex than others. Um, and some of them have more grounded rules. And some of them are kind of just inconsistent like i'm sure if you look back through all if you go through greek mythology if you try to actually draw a straight line through the various magical abilities it's not going to make much sense Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. we've always had this fascination with magic and that's why we see it in so many different stories uh just like I, i i think if you ask almost anyone just like try and think of the oldest story the oldest fictional story you can think of and it's like probably has something 
magical in there or mm-hmm. supernatural. Yeah, I think of like, I don't know if this is the oldest, but Beowulf, where he's fighting a, a monster creature in the cave and there's a lot of magic to it and mysticism. Yes, and especially when that creature looks like Angelina Jolie. Mm. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. What are some of your favorite examples of magic systems? Um, so one of the simplest kind of examples of a magic system, uh, just as a very classic example, I was thinking a lot about the genie from Aladdin. Okay. Because uh, I think it's this is a very good example of a magic system that I feel like is very easy to understand in terms of having rules and making sure that uh, the way it fits with the story makes sense to the viewer, the reader, or whatever. Uh, so I, I'm, and I'm mostly talking about the Disney version because that's the one that mostly everyone knows. I'm not really familiar with how it's done in the actual like a thousand Arabian nights. So, uh, mm-hmm. so you'd have to look that up yourself. But in the case of the genie, uh, you know, he's, he's this being that has unlimited cosmic power, uh, as he says, but there are rules. Uh, he, you can only get three wishes. You can't wish for any more wishes. He can't bring anyone back from the dead. Uh, he can't make anyone fall in love. Uh, and he can't kill anyone. And those are rules that all make for different situations in the story where we kind of know what can and can't happen. Uh, like we know, okay, well, Aladdin can't wish for Jasmine to fall in love with him. He's got to do something else. We know that when Jafar gets his hands on the genie, he can't wish for the genie to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. And then we also know that genies do have this uh, crazy amount of power, but they also are confined to a lamp when they don't have a master. And Aladdin manages to use that against Jafar at the end of the movie. And so all the stuff to do with a genie's magic power, we understand it. We know how it works. I mean, we don't I mean we don't actually know like the origins of genies, but we know that in the context of Aladdin, the rules that are laid down and how characters work around those rules or use them to, to their advantage uh, in order to overcome their trials. That's awesome. So it's almost like the magic informs the stakes. The rules of magic informs the stakes. And that the magic is uh, feels very entwined uh, with the story and the world. Uh, like they don't, they feel very much uh, entwined with each other. And like one, and you know, there are definitely times when a magic system, uh, if it's, uh, it can feel kind of detached uh, depending on how well it has or hasn't been written. But in this case, like it's pretty easy to, it's pretty easy to kind of understand the rules and the powers of the genie and uh and it is tied so closely into the story and the conflict uh and we have uh it makes it easy for us to follow it and when things happen we don't scratch our heads and say well that doesn't that doesn't make sense because blah 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 or you know there's no deus ex yeah yeah or it, it makes me think of like situations where there's no oh that was convenient moments right everything has a root in yes. into the overarching purpose Okay. Exactly. I looked at, let's see, I looked at some examples as well. I figured we can go back and forth, but I looked at reasons for, or at least accessibility to magic. So for example, inheriting magic, I thought of Percy Jackson, you were born into greatness. You were a demigod. 
your father's a Greek god, your mother, whatever. And therefore, you now have these gifts, and that's what makes them exceptional. So, uh, yeah, the magic gifts that you are bequeathed upon birth. And then I have magic gifts that you are trained to have. So Harry Potter. However, in that world, you have to be born with the ability to be trained. So I guess it's a combination of both there. Yeah, it's not. I'm not really clear on how that works because like there's all the there are like muggle-borns that end up having some kind of magic midi-chlorian count and then they go to yeah. Hogwarts. I'm yep. not sure. I'm not sure what the technical reading is on that, but they somehow figured. That was a figured. great pop culture mashup right there. <laughs> yeah. It, I, okay. So then maybe Harry Potter's not the perfect example of being trained into wizardry. Would Gandalf be a good example? Um. Uh, well, no. Um, okay. And, <laughs> Uh, part of that, and there's a whole explanation for that that we do not have enough time to talk. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, I mean, something. I mean, I mean, I will say that in the context of Harry Potter, like I guess, like there is, they do kind of have to have a natural inclination toward it, but they still don't know how to really use it. Uh, you know, so there is something to be. They all still have to be. You know, I don't think that you can be born with some kind of magical inclination and then just figure it out on your own. Like mm. it, it has to be kind of developed. I would love to see a Harry Potter villain. Now, mind you, I've only read the main books and saw the main movies. I have not watched Fantastic Beasts. I read the play of the Cursed Child and I kind of stopped there. So I don't know if they've already done this, but I would love to see a villain who has had zero, like zero training but this is a kid that was like got slept on by the system and had all the magical things that Harry had right before he started school, you know, with the, the disappearing glass and appearing on top of the school building. What if a character like that never went to school, but developed their powers on their own? What would that sort of chaotic magic look like? It would be interesting. And I wonder like how, I don't know if they get overlooked, it's like how long until someone from the ministry like has mm. to come in take notice or something like that because it feels like they kind of know about any kind of instance of magic from someone that's Ooh. underage actually this kind of foreshadows to our later discussion on making yourself known if you have magic because you kind of have no choice in the harry potter world if you're magical they can like smell you out yeah they figure it out interesting okay and then the other uh way of getting to access accessibility to magic was when it's an outside force, I guess Genie kind of falls into this because Aladdin's not the one with magic. Genie's the one with magic. But I thought of the invisible life of Addie LaRue, who uh, gets a magical thing done to her by a dark spirit in the woods. And so now she lives kind of a magical life where people forget who she is after they meet her, but it, she didn't do it herself. Someone else, it's like she was cursed, basically. Yeah, and that one is fascinating because it you know it does start out very much as it is seen as a bad thing. It is seen as a curse. And I mean, you know, the, the obviously the overarching story is her kind of dealing with it, but over time, uh she kind of learns some of the advantages of it. You know, I wouldn't say I don't think she's ever truly happy about it, uh, but she does figure out certain advantages to the curse that she uses to you know, make it more bearable. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that's kind of interesting because, it, oh, oh man, what was I going to say? Oh, I just had a good thought. 
oh, something to do with a curse. I hate when that happens. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Uh, I mean, I guess you could say like uh, like Elsa from Frozen is a bit the same way because mm. she kind of spends most of her life thinking that she's cursed uh, with the ice powers uh, until she kind of figures out uh, what she can really do with them and is finally able to fully harness them and uh, basically learns that she's not really this magical ice monster. Yep, yep. What other magic system examples do you have? Uh, so the one that I do really want to talk about sort of bleeds into um, another subject you know we had going down the road, which involved kind of uh, rules to magic. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be the Mistborn books by Brandon Sanderson, which uh, has one of the most complex, explicitly detailed magic systems that I've read. Uh, so in the Mistborn books, there are these people called Allomancers, and they get their powers by ingesting these little vials of metal shavings. Ooh. And each metal is a different kind of power. Uh, and I can't remember exactly what all of them are, but there's like power that gives you the ability to push against metal uh, or pull it towards you. Or there's metal that can let you manipulate someone's emotions. Uh, there are special beings called Mistborn that have control of every kind of metal. Uh, and then they're, well, as opposed to others that only have one. But the interesting thing about this is, first of all, uh, you know, the metal is a finite resource. So like if if an Alamancer drinks a vial uh, and then they use that metal, uh, it only lasts for a while. And like once it runs out, they either have to have another vial on hand or they just don't, they don't have their ability anymore. Um, and the other thing is that every power has some kind of uh consequence to using it uh, so mm -hmm. for example uh one of my favorite examples is uh, i think it's pewter uh if you if uh alamancer is using pewter they uh have they become stronger they have greater endurance and stamina so they can fight longer they can run these great distances but uh any kind of physical toll it takes on you once you like deactivate the metal it all hits you at once so if you uh, if you get like stabbed during a fight, you would you be able to shrug it off? But once the power wears off, you're gonna feel it. Or uh, if you go sprinting for like 50 miles uh, and you turn it off, your body won't be able to move because it's gonna be so sore because you just ran 50 miles. And that's uh, that's what's always fascinated me about that particular system is because every kind of like Aladdin, uh, all the rules are laid out. You as the reader learn how every power works. You learn, uh, you know, what the limitations are. So every time there's a conflict or a fight scene, you know how it works. And like there, you know, no one can really pull a fast one on you. Uh, and the only time uh, new things are revealed is after you kind of fully understand everything that's already been introduced. Like you kind of go, kind of go deeper and then wider. Mm -hmm. You brought up a really good point about a cost. Now in some places i think harry potter's general use of magic i don't see a cost associated but i think maybe in like the more serious spells i'm not quite sure i can't remember but there's other stories where there's a cost to using magic once upon a time the abc show that was basically disney fan fiction there's a cost to having spells right it's like a, a every force has an opposing uh, reactionary force um what are your thoughts on that is there 
a preferred way? Um, what do you think? I mean, I love the idea of uh, magic having limitations or costs. Um, whether or not you want to do that in your story kind of just depends on the kind of story you want to write. Um, you know, because uh, th there are people that do want the limitation to be there specifically because they want to have a, a, a system that isn't like, you know, if they're, if they're magic, they want to make sure that it's this ancient, powerful thing uh, that we don't quite understand, which is why it takes a cost. Or if it's like Mistborn, we already understand how it works, but uh, so then we clearly know why uh, there are limitations and what uh, the issues are if someone's using their powers wrong or if they run out of their power and uh, stuff like that. I also, you mentioned once upon a time, another instance of uh, magic costing was there was a very short-lived show called Camelot, uh, which was on Stars. Um, it actually came out the same year as Game of Thrones, which I think is one of the reasons it didn't do well. Um, and it actually starred uh, Eva Green and Jamie Campbell Bower, who is now best known for Stranger Things. Uh, and he was Arthur. Uh, and in that particular show, um, Merlin, uh, like de he doesn't do a lot of magic to start off. And they're always like, why don't you do your magic, Merlin? Because, you know, in most iterations, Matt Merlin is this, I mean, he's, I mean, he's the archetypical uh, old wizard. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, without, without Merlin, there's no Gandalf, there's no Obi-Wan. <laughs> yeah. So, but Merlin like spends most of the first half of the series saying like, I can't do magic. It costs like it, it like it's uh, it takes a toll on, on someone physically to use the magic. It's so, so then when you take like a 10,000 foot drop view of magic and how magic is used in fiction. What is its fundamental purpose? Is it a means to an end, an end to a means? Is it just fun? What are your thoughts? Uh, Ken, it really has to do. So I always see, uh, I think if you boil it down uh, in a story, magic exists to uh, evoke a sense of wonder and or solve a problem. Yeah, sometimes both sometimes one and depending on the goal of the story uh, that will determine whether or not you're going to have something that's more complex or something that doesn't really have isn't really clearly defined doesn't really have a set of rules but that when someone reads it or watches it or whatever uh, has a sense of wonder at this, at this magic, mm, uh, okay. and uh, and you know, and that can be tied into like if the whole, you know, because I think uh, oh, uh, if you have something like uh, Mistborn, like I was telling you about, uh, that's more just how characters solve their problems. I mean, I think there is something very cool about the idea of the elements or magic, but in most cases, the magic in that book series is how people solve their problems. Gotcha. Then you have stuff like uh, Lord of the Rings where we don't really know how any of the magic works in that. <laughs> but every time something does happen, we're like, oh, like that's amazing. Does Lord uh, of the Rings have, and I think you talked about this, but like, it, do you think it was like purposely vague enough to keep it so it's kind of like an awe-inspiring thing or 
uh, could they have been, could he have done more um, rule defining? Um, I mean, I think, uh, who knows? I mean, I think Tolkien really was more just like, I want a world where I can, I wrote the Elvish language and I want to use it. (laughs) He's like, I wrote a language and now I want to build a world around it, um, was what he wanted to do. Um, And I don't know that he really cared to make magic very specific. Um, I mean, there's some things we understand. We understand that, oh, whoever has the one ring, uh, if they wear it, they're invisible, but also the longer they keep it, the more you know, corrupted by it they are. You know, that's a very, that's something that we understand throughout the whole trilogy. Um, we know how that works. Um, but I mean, if you're looking at someone, Gandalf, who, uh, you know, is the wizard, he's there for the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I mean, he doesn't, we don't know how he's able to do what he does. Like when he fights the Balrog and he has like a, you know, at one point he kind of has like this sheet, this shield of light that repels the Balrog, or he like smites his staff onto the bridge and uh, to fend off the Balrog. It's like I don't know how he does that. He's not saying a spell. I don't know, uh, you know, how much of that is his staff or how much is it's him. Uh, but it's so cool to watch. Yeah, like, I don't think there's anybody that's ever watched the Balrog scene and thought well, this is ridiculous because I don't know how Gandalf does his spells. <laughs> well, maybe fantasy haters. <laughs> I mean, and, and maybe maybe someone does. But like, but, that's, but I think that's the other thing. Like we mentioned Deus Ex before. Like nothing that Gandalf does with his magic is ever used to automatically solve a problem. I mean, like, even with the Balrog. Like, yes, sure. He, he uses magic to fight the Balrog, but he dies. Yeah. Like it's, it's not like he gets everyone away scot-free. Well, because it's like uh, an easy button, right? It's like, oh, plot device fix right there, yeah. which would be awful for readers. Yeah, I think he just kind of, I think Tolkien just had him kind of do whatever he thought would be good in the moment. Um, and, you know, never really wanted to fall into a, didn't really feel like developing a full-blown, I mean, this is what all the wizards are capable of, because then uh, you also have the problem of like, well, then how do you quantify him being weaker or more stronger than Saruman, mm. or, you know, it becomes, it's like, well, if they have all these skills, I mean, it's kind of like Superman, but like, if you go on like Wikipedia for Superman, it'll have a list of every single thing he's ever done, which is wildly inconsistent across all iterations of Superman. Uh, oh. It's like, all right, if he has all these powers, then like, uh, how is anything ever a threat to him that isn't kryptonite or, or whatever? Right. Well, in a way too, from a writer's perspective, it's like, I'm I'm in charge here, <laughs> you know. It's yes, like I'm yeah. setting this up. Like I don't want you to be able to establish this. Like as a reader, I want you to enjoy what I I write, but I want to be able to continue surprising you, right, and entertaining you. Yeah, exactly. Can a writer use magic as like a license to just do whatever they want, or are there some rules to consider? Yes, but with an asterisk. Okay. Uh, I, I think it can be as fluid or rigid as you want. Um, but, you know, you kind of have to think about if it's going to cheapen your story. Mm. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, there are some there are some ways where, you know, you can kind of just go hand wavy with it. Uh, you know, like we don't really need to 
complete if you're just telling like a fairy tale kind of story where i feel like in a lot of fairy tale stories magic is just kind of i don't know we you know we don't really know how they do it like how did the, how did the evil queen have witchcraft powers we don't know how did mm. how come maleficent can turn into a giant dragon all of a sudden like i don't know but she can uh but we <laughs> but we don't but we don't really mind that uh mm-hmm. like i don't think anyone you know would get annoyed by that but i mean there there if you have a case where oh the magic just solves the problem without any kind of foreshadowing. I mean, really, it's less about your magic and more about your storytelling. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like if your storytelling's bad, then your magic is probably going to be bad. And it's probably because you're using magic as a crutch to get you out of anything. Uh, right. And that, that, you know, goes back around. It's like, okay, well, why would you want to have, uh, you know, magic with rules versus soft magic? And, uh that's a trap for both because if you have uh so you know i uh brandon sanderson refers to this as like a hard versus soft magic system so you know rules versus no rules or whatever oh okay uh and uh if you have a hard magic system you know you potentially if someone understands how it works it's like you better make sure that you know you stay consistent with that because if you have all these rules and then you just pull something out of your ass for the for the finale that like wait and then it's like and then people are like wait like since when can they do that like that wasn't uh you know i mean cuz there's a difference between introducing a new ability uh you know, introducing something new that kind of changes uh changes how things work and then just making something up because i didn't think this through and i have to get my characters out of this corner that's how i feel about the end of the what's it called the last skywalker i was i was oh man how long did it take us to get to star wars uh, <laughs> i know right uh, you know, and it's, we probably and it's even funny. talked about it already but like that's a, <laughs> an ass pull if ever there was but that's just my personal opinion yeah, and, and it's funny because i was thinking about because i was thinking about star wars uh in regards to this topic and i was thinking about like how you know in most situations in the movies like the force is not a get out of get out of jail free card uh but i do think that and i mean i know i know that in the case of the last skywalker uh it it's i guess the whole idea that kylo ren and ray are a force dyad so they have these latent powers that are made stronger in each other's presence which Sure, but uh, but the emperor said an association. What's that? Suddenly associating the emperor and uh, explaining yeah, away I, that and getting I rid of. Know. I think the previous. I actually really liked the previous idea that anyone could be force sensitive. I yeah, I loved that. That was the whole thing with the last uh, the last Jedi was mm-hmm. the uh, was like the little kid at the end with the broom and being force sensitive and all that stuff oh uh, yeah like your birth your birth isn't what makes you special uh-huh so they started a magic like a rule with a magic system there and then they're like well that eh, i mean kind of doesn't really apply here because now we have the emperor he's back yeah i mean i mean and i will i will say that the whole bringing the emperor back thing happened before in the old continuation uh, before the sequel trilogy so really they pulled that card oh yeah they uh, cloning and all that jazz uh, so, they, so they've done he, this before yeah they've done this which is why it's always funny because uh, i will you know i know that uh rise of skywalker has its issues but people are talking about oh like the emperor coming back and it's like okay but 
they've done this before. Like they tried doing this before. And a lot of the people that think that the old continuity from the books and comics was so much better. I'm like, okay, but they already brought Palpatine back in those, in those comics. He transferred his consciousness via the force to a clone. And that's why he knows everything. And uh, they, I'm not going to get all into that, but <laughs> suffice it to say, yes, that, uh, <laughs> you know, it's exhausting, but uh, yes. Uh, and now we've just gotten a bunch of people mad. I know, <laughs> Sorry, I, I, listeners. I, I love to make Star Wars fans mad. Uh, but yes, <laughs> overall, in, in most situations in Star Wars, the Force does not solve all their problems. Um, and it plays more of a supporting role uh, than it does like a, this, this wins us the victory or this figures, this unlocks everything for us. This makes a nice bridge into science fiction. Would you consider modern technology magical and can science fiction have a magic system? So as for modern technology, my cop-out answer is sort of. Okay. Um, I think that a lot of modern technology can have the same effect as magic. Um, whether you consider it magical is kind of a debate. Uh, you know, like I said, uh, I, you know, if you boil down magic in stories, uh, it either evokes a sense of wonder and or solves problems. And that's what a lot of modern tech does. Um, one of the things that does come to mind for magic is actually uh, stuff when it comes to filmmaking, like movie magic, mm. uh, because it accomplishes, it, it accomplishes both of those things. Like, you know, it causes one, it evokes wonder and it solves problems because there's filmmakers are like, well, I don't know how to make a giant walking, talking tree. Uh, and then yeah. they, use technology to make it or even if you even if we don't even have to talk about uh a cgi which obviously is how a lot of the movie magic is done nowadays but even you know just even something as something like makeup or just uh you know camera tricks that yeah. uh, make certain things happen. I, I was when i saw this question i thought of uh the original 1978 superman with uh, christopher reeve because the tagline for that film was you'll believe a man can fly and in that film uh when that initially came like it looks a little dated now of course but initially like the the reaction to seeing superman on screen flying around and you know catching helicopters with one hand i mean like that i believe that the that movie had uh movie magic that mm -hmm. made people believe that that's a really cool way of saying it uh, because I would, while you were talking, I was also envisioning deep fakes and how there's a guy on TikTok that keeps impersonating Tom Cruise and Keanu Reeves. And at first, if you have like a good eye, you can definitely recognize, you know, that it's not them, but there might be plenty of casual swipers that are like, oh, Keanu Reeves is doing a dance in his kitchen. How interesting. And then move on. And then now they've carried that memory with them and their interpretation of, of reality is that. And I just think it's kind of interesting what things like Deep Fake presents as far as kind of putting the uh, a, a magic veil over our eyes and affecting how we see the world. I think also uh, it's interesting to look at modern tech and think about would someone consider it magic if we pulled them in from, you know, the 1400s it's like oh. showed them what a yeah. cell phone it's like are they going to call this magic they probably would because like they thought that uh you know they thought that like mixing certain herbs and feeding them to people was witchcraft so they probably think my cell phone was some kind of witch's curse as well that's very true uh that no that's when i was uh 
in middle school, I had a, a fantasy novel that I wrote. I was very proud of myself. I wrote 130,000 words. Uh, that's, in that's something to shake a stick at. Yeah. I, I was like, what? That took me two years to do. Um, but anyway, one of the things I envisioned was they go to the future and everyone carries around. I wasn't like, again, I was in middle school. I wasn't that innovative. I was pretty innovative for my age, I guess. Um, I replaced newspapers. This is back in the two, like 1999, 2000s. <clears throat> I replaced newspapers with flat acrylic see-through screens that then you know, like basically what our tablets do and our cell phones do today. That's what I envisioned, but I wasn't quite there. I, I envisioned that these like every day they handed these out and then you recycled them and then you received a new one the next day, just like a newspaper. But to me, that was magic. And now it's just kind of probably warped. I've warped a vision of technology. <laughs> but no, but that is fascinating. Um, and especially, I mean, I think, uh, you know, putting that together, like I'm sure someone, like I'm sure looking at that and like, and calling it magic. I think that's absolutely valid. Well, and so then I got me thinking about where I've seen science fiction kind of label it as technology, but I'm like, that's magic. Um, so for example, traveling over great distances at a very, in a very short amount of time, yes. um, that's, that's just magic. Uh, another one is <laughs> successful terraforming. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. I always love talking about this book because it changed my life when I read it. 2312. You travel across the solar system using terraformed asteroids. So that, like the asteroids are the cabbie of, of the, of the, what are we, the solar system. So depending on what you jump on, the asteroid could be purposed for different reasons. There's like an asteroid that's entirely ocean, an asteroid that's entirely the specific kind of jungle environment. And while you're there, you can live your own entire life between the time that you board and when you get off on your other planet. And I'm like, that's magic. You know, like you can't tell me that you can take that idea and plot it or like just um, place it in a fantasy novel and it would still track, you know. Um, and then <laughs> this TikTok video came up of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the old 90s, 2000s TV show where Willow is hacking into a mainframe of something. And she's talking about fiber cables and um, she's got like this. <laughs> her screen is like the black and green and it's got what looks like a um, like a target scope on there and she's typing away and you're not really seeing any code that's magic you know <laughs> like, um I, I thought was that's hacker magic it's hacker magic it's so funny um so yeah when i was like how is how does science fiction have magic systems that's probably like the one that you know those are some of my examples uh, i also thought of dune in regards to science fiction uh with magic um, okay uh, because I mean, there's, first of all, there's the Bene Gisteret, which have the ability, uh, the voice, which basically allows them to, it's almost like a Jedi mind trick, you know, and I, I hate to use a Star Wars comparison, but I think most people compare Dune and Star Wars anyway, but yeah, it's basically they, uh, you know, using their voice, they manipulate their vocal cords to get people to, you know, do things. And usually it's just a very kind of simple action, but it's enough to, you know, uh, in like, if anyone ever watched, if you watched the movie, did you watch the movie? I watched the first one. Yes. yes. Oh, well, yeah. The only one that they haven't come yeah. out with the next one. Right? Yeah. Uh, and like, yeah. And then like, it, there's the part where like Paul and his mother are captured and they use the voice to like get people to, they get their, the henchmen to free them. Uh, yes. And then they also have, um, uh, uh, Paul, uh, who gains prescience abilities. Uh, so he's able to see the future. Uh, and, uh, and like, that's what the whole point is of, uh, I'm going to, I always butcher the pronunciation that 
Kiriset's Hederach, uh, which is what he's destined to become and uh, allows him to have all these visions. So he's able to see all these futures and like understand what's going to happen. Um, and I, and it's particularly interesting in Dune because uh, the technology is a bit different. Uh, there's no computers or robots. Um, uh, so it's not quite the same as in Star Wars with like the force and they have, they have droids and there's always these new like technical marvels, like the death star or a clone army. Uh, but in Dune, like, you know, obviously the technology is more advanced because they have spaceships and, whatnot but it's not like they're happening at the same time they're not using these abilities alongside ai or uh anything like that um and uh and and the uh the way they're treated is they're very much uh you know it's like there's this whole community the bene Gisserit, like with the ability of the voice like they've been building towards uh paul building towards the kiwasat's hataract for generations basically you know carefully manipulating bloodlines to make to get someone that's able to have the uh, ability to see the future like that. Interesting. I uh, definitely can learn from you as far as like the world building of Dune goes, because I watched the first movie and I tried reading the book. I failed reading the book <laughs> and that's about it. <laughs> the, the book can be, the book can be pretty dense. Yeah. Um, and complex. Okay. Jumping away from Dune real quick, I'm going to ask you the age-old controversial question. Is Star Wars a fantasy or sci-fi? So if I was sitting, if we were sitting in a room with George Lucas right now, he would say, you know, it's not sci-fi. Uh, you know, he'd say it's, a, he'd probably say it's a space opera or a space fantasy, which, you know, I'm inclined to agree. Okay. Um, I do think Star Wars, I think Star Wars falls under the wide umbrella of science fiction fantasy. Okay. Uh, there's just no get, no getting around that. Uh, you know, but if you want to get to specifics, you know, I would say it is space fantasy, space opera, whatever you call it, and that's and that's just a lot to do with just all the trap. I mean, you know, we've talked with I think we've talked before on a different podcast about Star Wars. Just it is just a fantasy, especially that first movie, uh, New Hope. It is just the classic fairy tale story of a. Mm -hmm youth rescuing a princess alongside a rogue and his wizened master uh yeah but i think from there uh it has uh, there are certain things that are obviously still very fantasy like uh you know when it comes to uh the jedi but it, it, there is still the science fiction aspect of it just in terms of technology mm -hmm. um and while like the advancement of technology isn't really, you know, it's not about the future because it's not our galaxy. Uh, but, uh, but it still plays a role uh, in the world. Uh, and so it's kind of hard to really shake that label for Star Wars overall. So I came across a really interesting statement. Uh, this is uh, by TikTok user Salandis writes, because I want to make sure I credit people. They recommend moving away from binary magic systems where good is light and bad is dark. What do you think of this and how can we introduce more nuances? Um, in general? Yes, I agree that uh, there is, it is very often a little too black and white. Um, I mean, I think that uh, that's of course the case with a lot of older stories. Um, but then there's cases like, <laughs> And I talk about this with my wife all the time, like in Harry Potter, 
literally Hogwarts is the good guys go to Gryffindor, the bad guys go to Slytherin, and I don't really care what happens to the other two. <laughs> um, and it's just like, and and in in the books and the movies, whatever, like there's almost nothing, there's no Slytherin characters that are ever seen as like redeemable or having like like I think like there's just like even like Draco like who mm. we it, it seems like at the end he kind of realizes like oh man like we are the baddies like oh man I'm way in over my head but he doesn't actually do anything like he was That's never true. given he doesn't have a redemption he, does he he was he was never given he he should have had something yeah. he should have had something to do but like he didn't do anything they're just or oh, what was it? I can't remember if it's in the book or just the movie, but there's like the part where it's like right before the battle starts and uh, basically McGonagall is like, send the Slytherins back to the common room. Oof. It's like, oh yeah, we're just going to group because we're going to assume that all the Slytherins are genocidal, you know, wizard maniacs or whatever. And I think that's just the most, because I think the reason why it it, it stings with Harry Potter so much is because if you want to talk about something like uh, Lord of the Rings and like, obviously you have Gandalf the white versus uh, and Sauron who is all in black armor and whatnot. I mean, that's at least, I mean, that's a classic fairy tale binary. I mean, that was the blueprint for it. Or if you want to talk about star Wars, how Jedi usually dress in lighter clothes and there's the dark side of the force. I mean, that, you know, that there is that. Um, but Harry Potter is set in our world. Mm-hmm. Like it's in our, in our real world it, it things don't really work like that like i i can't i cannot believe that every single person in slytherin was like oh yeah i totally support wiping out the muggle board or or i totally support what voldemort's doing like i just that just is so that is incredibly uh one-dimensional yeah well, so and, i think it, yeah keep going no, I'm, I apologize for interrupting you if you wanted to finish. No, 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 no. No, I was just going to say, like, I absolutely think that we, I think there are instances where uh, I think it comes down to less referring to things as light or dark. Um, because dark doesn't, dark saying dark magic isn't necessarily always a uh, a bad thing. Like, there are a lot of, uh, like, the first thing that comes to mind is, like, the video game Final Fantasy. There's, like, a class called a black mage and they're not evil they're 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 in your party they just have a different skill set from a white mage um uh so i don't so i think it has less to do with uh the color designation although that that can be worked on in other contexts too but more just you know magic doesn't need to be so binary in terms of good and evil Mm -hmm. when i was thinking about slytherin let's just say okay maybe the intention was yeah we're going to identify these miscreants and you know genocidal hungry maniacs we're going to put them all in one house but i'm like wouldn't that only perpetuate the problem the 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 observed problem that the Rather than, let's say, Draco Malfoy, who believes that, you know, mudbloods are bad and only purebloods are good, wouldn't he have benefited from being exposed to the different parts of the, like, people and societies rather than being isolated into sure. these like ways of thinking? So, in a way, it's like, okay, round them up, but then at the same time, what do they benefit from that? It doesn't, you know, solve anything. And it's kind of interesting because there's a little bit of a hint of that with Harry, because, you know, when he's getting sorted, the 
hat originally says, oh, you should be in Slytherin. Um, but Harry, I mean, before he even gets to Hogwarts, we know he's not a bad person. Mm-hmm. You know, he's this boy that, you know, has had a hard life. Uh, and I think he's good at heart. He's just had a hard time. And I don't think that going to Slytherin would have, and he would have made him inherently evil. Uh, but uh, but then you have like the, I remember it also says like, oh, the hat barely touched Draco's head before it said Slytherin. It's like, okay, we already know ahead of time that Draco is an a-hole. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I don't know. It's, it, it is extremely, I, I think, I think it was different when Harry Potter was a kind of straightforward children's series, which it still is at heart, but once it kind of matured around book four and got more dark and complex, still clinging on to the binary of Gryffindor good, Slytherin bad, just it just didn't age well. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're coming close to our hour, and I realize we've been talking, I mean, I lost track of time. This has been such a fun conversation, but we have a debate that I wanted to finish yes. this up with. And um, this debate is is an age-old debate, but I figured it'd be kind of fun to discuss. And Matt, you were assigned pro and I was assigned con. So here is the scenario. If magic were real and only certain people could tap into it, should they be required to reveal themselves to the general population? So Matt's being pro, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so this was funny to try and put on a different cap for this. Uh, this was a fun challenge. Um, but I would say for the pro side, in terms of our world, magic has always been kind of unknown. We don't really understand the full extent of it. And assuming that it were revealed to be real and we knew that there were certain people that could tap into it, I would think that we want to learn as much about it as we can. There's obviously the practical purposes of depending on what abilities they have, they might be able to uh, help in different kinds of fields, whether it's medical, healthcare, or uh, uh, what's the word I want? Um, Infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of magical abilities. uh, And I'm kind of just gesturing it as this like vague, we don't know. Let's just assume there's like, let's assume it's like the X-Men and they have a variety of powers. that would be helpful, but we have to consider that if there's people that are willing to help, there are people that are also willing to hurt because there are people, people who have power, uh, you know, sometimes will use it to benefit, but there are also those who will inevitably will not use it to help people. And I believe that the only way to try and curb that is for everyone to be identified because uh, if because otherwise the only other people that would be aware of the magic are a magically inclined relative or maybe someone who works in the government in absolutely high levels. I mean, that's kind of how it is in Harry Potter, right? In Harry Potter, the only people that know about magic outside of the muggle in the muggle world are people that have uh, a family relation that went to Hogwarts or like the tip top level of the government. Mm-hmm. And is that but does that really benefit them? Because most of the time it seems like wizards are just running around like magical men in black erasing memories. Um, and it's like, at what point is it like they're trying to just protect themselves? Because I know the reasoning would be like, oh, there has been historical precedence for 
uh, people with magic or suspected to be practicing witchcraft to be persecuted and executed. Uh, but at what point is it that uh, about preservation and does it come down more to control, direct control over this population that is not magically inclined? Mm. And I know that the concern for some would be that, oh, but if we know who has the magic abilities, they could be targeted. In which case I would say there should be uh, certain protections put in place for those magical ability in much the same way as there are hate crime laws that we already have now. Nice, nice. Okay, does that conclude your argument? Yeah, I'd like to hear your side. <laughs> well, all right. I, d I have a couple bullet points here. And then I have like, and I took it seriously for the first couple bullet points. And then my last bullet point is more of a tongue in cheek <laughs> answer. So I actually assigned the pros and cons without looking at, I forgot how I phrased the question. So I was like, you take pro and I take con. And then a couple of weeks later, I looked at it. I'm like, oh, I gave him the, 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 the one that you don't normally hear being argued for. Um, the con is the one that you hear being argued a lot. And it's a very prominent X-Men argument, which you've already brought up, which is the idea that registering everyone with powers could actually endanger them as people and organizations target them as threats. And this would mean that people with powers are considered to have less rights than those who don't because yeah, um, those that do not have powers are not being registered or not put on a watch list, all that kind of stuff. It establishes a hierarchy where the superhuman um, is now considered inferior and could potentially lead to population control. And, you know, uh, my question I ask is, what will people do with this registry? Will they kind of just leave it there and go, okay, we're all good? Or will it become kind of a, a bullet in the chamber to use whenever we decide something else we don't like about the person? Well, now we can convict them for something like this, this thing as well. Like, my kid doesn't like your kid. Your kid is registered as, um, as a mutant a magic whatever and therefore i fear my child's safety they had a fight and therefore the magic person needs to be whatever put away put in a different classroom all that stuff i'm just coming up with uh, examples uh to me a person has a choice and having gifts doesn't mean they're automatically expected to pay their dues to society so the idea that someone who is magical might be beneficial to a community that is a very altruistic mindset. Absolutely, the idea that you want the most talented and the brightest people to contribute to the society. But even today, the most talented person could choose to not contribute to society. And therefore, um, that expectation should not be for magic users. And society is a fickle thing. Talented and amazing people are raised up and celebrated for their eventual slaughter. We look at uh, I'm trying to think of any examples here. The Kardashians is not a good example because they're, they're <laughs> back and forth revered and hated. <laughs> but let's think, what is someone that was raised up really high and then was hated? I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I don't know if Harry is a good example. Harry and Meghan is either. Um, anyway, there you go. So that's like my more serious take on, on the argument. My more sinister approach is this, is quite honestly, we're just delaying the inevitable here. If magic were real and only certain people can tap into it, we've, we've uncovered this hierarchy and maybe the hierarchy is actually that we magic folk are better than you. 
Would a wolf be required to register themselves at the request of the sheep? <laughs> so there you go. That's my argument. Uh, if you got to keep that line in mind because that's a, I think that's a good one. <laughs> I actually really like the example you gave of like if magically inclined children interacting with non-magically inclined children. Mm-hmm. And that actually made me think of uh, the movie Man of Steel. Uh, which is interesting because I know in your example, you were talking about kids getting in a fight, but in Man of Steel, there's a scene where young Clark Kent saves a school bus from drowning because he mm-hmm. has super strength. But but uh, afterward, there's like a mother talking about it like he did something wrong. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, yeah, they're saying like, my son was there. He saw what Clark did. And, he's, and she's talking about it like he hurt someone, but he saved the school bus. And it's kind of interesting that... Uh, you know, even though he did a good thing, it's the fear of what people don't understand, uh, which yeah. would be a huge issue for if uh, magical people started to come out of the woodwork. Yes. Well, I was just thinking like, yeah, in real, as you were talking, in real life, if we did have a magic race suddenly make itself known, what would we do as a society? I mean, there'd be fear and I could absolutely see people wanting to start a registry. I mean, that actually made me think of, uh, you said coming out of, uh, revealing themselves and I thought of True Blood. You ever, oh. did you ever watch True Blood? I did. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it's like, it, I always thought there was such a fascinating, it's like, all right, uh, there's vampires and we just kind of got to live with it. And I mean, we, I mean, honestly, we'd probably see a lot of the same issues in True Blood. I mean, like, obviously I assume, let's assume the magical folk don't need blood to survive. But you'd still see a lot of the same, you know, persecution and vitriol against them for all the same reasons. I mean, I mean, if I mean, if people, uh, if like the Catholic Church was burning witches at the stake, that people that they assumed were witches, uh, back way back when, all because they had like a third nipple or something mm-hmm. weird like that. Mm-hmm. What do you think they're gonna do when they actually figure <laughs> out that someone can like, you know? turn someone into a pig like Circe or something like that. Oh, that's, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. My thought is they'd find a way to register the magically inclined, but as if it were helping them. We understand that you have magical powers and special needs. We want to make sure that we're able to meet those special needs, whether it's like specialized medical treatment or whatever, um, enhanced vision care, and therefore, only people that have signed up for this or have identified as this get access to that stuff. And now you oh have your boy. registry. Oh, boy. <laughs> Some scary stuff. Uh, anyway, thank you, Matt, for participating in that. I thought that was kind of fun. We haven't done a debate like that before. Yeah, it was fun to put on my... I basically pretended to be Thaddeus Thunderbolt from Captain America's Civil War. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> all right, like this is what's going on. <laughs> well nice job nice job all right so thank you so much this has been a long conversation i really appreciate you being a part of it it's always so much fun so can you tell me any uh, last remarks any promos uh no real promos i already dropped my uh uh, my short story which i will i guess i will add that it is available to both read and listen to in audio form if you prefer that so you can listen to it on a like a 40 minute car ride during your commute uh but otherwise um i don't i don't really have anything else but hopefully uh 
I don't know, maybe next time uh, we do an episode, maybe I have some more exciting news. Who knows? Yeah. You and me both. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know. I would, I know. I'd like, let's, let's, uh, I got fingers crossed for both of us this year. <laughs> yes, same. Yeah, one day, one day. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.